The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Maya Nicholson, Internet Lawfare, with an episode of Rational Security for February 25th, 2024. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a roundtable podcast hosted by Quinta Jurassic, Scott R. Anderson, and Alan Z. Rosenstein, in which they discuss the week's top national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled The Fast and the Furious Edition. In the episode, Jurassic, Anderson, and Rosenstein sat down to discuss the suspicious death of Alexei Navalny and Russian forces gaining control over a Ukrainian town, rising tensions between Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and President Biden as the situation in Gaza worsens, the broad bipartisan support for the Kids' Online Safety Act, and more. This is Rational Security. So guess who visited me in the frozen north? this this past weekend not you two because you're never really not good enough friends you were, there's approximately 60 day windows where i'm willing to visit the state of minnesota and it is not these 60 days <laughs> we'll get you here no it was it was the witnesses it was it was ben Wittis and and uh the the best Wittis, as we say tammy Wittis. oh the witticisms <laughs> i like the it. witticisms that's good that's good yeah no it was great they came to visit uh they came to visit the new the new baby and see the old baby i gotta say ben ben Wittis is remarkably good with with little children he has he's, he's like a whisperer. savant he has he really he honestly he 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 really was you know there was there was a point in the weekend where it was just uh, uh ben me and and the the young one sam uh our, our newborn in in the house and sam was just not not wanting to take a bottle and i don't know i somehow somehow ben through some combination of of wearing him and bouncing and singing some song managed to to get some get some get some milk in him it was really it was an impressive performance Ben's a nurturer. I do. I do wonder what impact the dog shirt has had on uh, child rec- receptiveness. Like some children <laughs> will probably find it terrifying because they're like, "Here is this krang like maw coming at me every time he tries to hold me up." But other ones, maybe it, it makes them more cuddly. I don't know. Maybe a shirt to shirt sort of thing. I mean, my understanding is that is that Natalie's kid loves loves the dog shirt. Ben Ben is. I think Ben is trying to. He is. I think Ben is trying to incept dog shirt love in. The next generation of uh, of of lawfare progeny. I don't know how I feel about it. I'm I'm still resisting. Yeah, I think maybe we'll get to the point where he wears the full fuzzy dog outfit, and then maybe I could get on board. I think that's ben, what I'm ben, waiting for. Ben, ben just becomes a furry. That's the logical outgrowth of, of all. That's of this. basically right. I mean that <laughs> we don't know what he's doing in his off hours. So that <laughs> might be right. I mean we had, we had that Brookings Bunny outfit for a while that was hanging around the office. <laughs> 
Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, back here in the virtual studio with my two other regular co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. Well, I am thrilled to be back here with both of you for what we are calling the Fast and the Furry Us edition <laughs> in honor of uh, some of the extracurriculars of possibly some of our colleagues uh, that we speculated on in our B-roll at the top of the episode. We have some big national security news to talk over this week, a couple of major developments on a couple of stories we've been following, a couple of very serious developments, uh, and of course, some things happening on Capitol Hill that are up our alley that we are going to revisit on the legislative front. So let us get into it. Our first topic for today, is revanchism a dish best served cold? Russia boosters seem to be feeling bullish for the first time in a long time. This week, its forces captured the strategic town of Adika from Ukrainian forces, who have been weakened by bickering among their Western allies, and imprisoned Russian dissident Alexei Navalny met with a tragic and highly suspicious end, just as Western governments came together at the annual Munich Security Conference. Is Russia right to be feeling its oats? Topic two, BB Steps. As Israel prepares to mount a controversial military operation against Rafah, the last refuge for many displaced civilians in Gaza, there are cracks between the government of Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu and the Biden administration, who in recent weeks have shown an increased willingness to target settler violence in the West Bank with sanctions, to impose some conditionality on U.S. security assistance, and to turn to the U.N. Security Council for possible support for a temporary ceasefire, even over Israeli objections. Are these signs of a bigger divide to come, and what will the impact be on the trajectory of the Gaza conflict? And topic three, won't somebody please think of the children? <laughs> that was good. The, that was that that was some that was like that delivery. was Shane no, that was Shane Harris level ratsec. Well, I think well we've done. used I think we've used a version of this title every time we've talked about this legislation. I intend to keep using it and just getting more dramatic every time we do. <laughs> so I'm hoping it has a long life ahead of us to see how I can continue to let, to chew the scenery around this particular line. Because the Kids Online Safety Act, or COSA, is back, this time in somewhat modified form, promising to introduce new regulations into how our children engage with online platforms, this time with broad bipartisan support, including from the Biden administration. But will it actually help protect children online or only put vulnerable communities more at risk? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So let's start with the fall of, uh, of Avdivka. So last week, the Ukrainian military announced its retreat uh, from the city, uh, which is in the center of the Donetsk Oblast in eastern Ukraine. Uh, the Ukraine military's rationale for the retreat was to avoid imminent encirclement by Russian forces, so they were trying to cut their losses. Although it does appear that several hundred Ukrainian soldiers may have been captured in the retreat, which would uh, both be kind of a major embarrassment for Ukraine and a pretty serious blow to, to morale. There's obviously a lot to talk about, but let's just start with uh, the immediate military implications. And, and I'll, I'll start with you, uh, Scott. Do you think that the Russia's capture of Azivka is an important military turning point? And, you know, both in the, in the short term and also in, in the long term in the sense of, you know, what this suggests for what the end game of this, of this war is, right? I mean, if Azivka is just the first in what might be a, a, a slow-moving Russian advance that's going to capture even more territory... Are we seeing what the end game is going to look like, which is some negotiated settlement where, unfortunately, Ukraine is not going to be able to get back to the status quo ante of its territory before Russia invaded uh, two years ago? 
So it's a good question, uh, you know, and I, I I hesitate to speak on it with too much confidence, uh, simply because I'm not deeply versed enough in the strategic significance of this particular uh, capture. Um, you know, my sense from looking at what other people who do follow the nitty gritty and strategic implications of the conflict have said is that this is not necessarily itself a major development, but it is a major step by the Russians towards what could be an assault on much more critical supply lines for Ukrainian forces, particularly those defending Donetsk uh, from or defending the parts of Donetsk that they've taken back from the Russians. And so in that sense, it is a notable development, a concerning one. I think a lot of its significance at this point might be more psychological or more, might be more about uh, kind of reading the momentum. I mean, this really was much more – part of the reason this is so notable is because this is kind of the first significant advance we've seen Russian forces make in a while. Uh, there's been a little back and forth around different parts of the borders, but the overall story has been of Ukrainian forces pushing back, taking territory back from the Russians that they took in their initial advance more or less, including into Donetsk and Luhansk, the kind of two – republics that were uh, declared to be independent or recognized to be independent by Russia and provided the pretext for this conflict. That then kind of ground to a halt. We thought maybe the uh, offensive the Ukrainians were planning was going to break through that kind of frozen line and perhaps take some more territory back. That didn't really manifest. Um, and so now we've had fairly static lines, and this is the first time the Russians have pushed through it. The the part of the story that gets overlooked uh, and the part that the Russians are not acknowledging or playing up is the costliness of it. This is a big reason why it seems like the Russians were able to do this is because they have a significant advantage both in arms and personnel. They're essentially launching five times as many uh, artillery shells as the Ukrainians are, in part because the Ukrainians are short on artillery shells because of production slowdown and because of assistance slowdown by Western governments backing them, including in Europe and the United States. So that is a problem, a potentially longer-term problem for the Ukrainians. But it's also one that might have a little bit of a limited time frame. We know we're in this big negotiation, at least in terms of U.S. assistance uh, that is that has held up U.S. assistance. That a logjam could break on that in the coming weeks. That could alleviate some of the pressure on the Ukrainians. Um, the Russians have also suffered a huge number of casualties. I mean, um, over in the conflict overall, and including in taking this particular target. Again, where we've seen advances by Russian forces, it has been at immense cost in terms of personnel. Russia has a pipeline in place, one that appears a little more stable now than back when it was using conscriptees and uh, Wagner mercenaries to kind of fill out its uh, lines of forces. But that is still a a difficult task. You can only kill tens of thousands of your own nationals and soldiers so often to take strategic targets like this. And you're going to have a lot more targets between this and getting anywhere near what Russia wanted to accomplish in the original conflict, or even into just securing Donetsk and Luhansk. So, um, you know, I don't think this is a game, a sign of a game changer, but it is a sign a little bit of a, of a change in momentum or perhaps a, a sign that momentum really has kind of ground down to a halt and is now kind of bouncing back and forth between these, these two sides. And, the real concerning part of this is that it does underscore perhaps Russia's long-term advantages, which is that it's a major economy with a, an authoritarian government that seems dead set on doing this. And so if they can get their industrial base up and if they are simply willing to throw bodies and money, blood and treasure against an objective, it's going to be harder for smaller governments to stand up against that without substantial amounts of support, which right now has been on hold. And I think that's the bigger concerning part of the story. Scott, one thing that you you touched on and that I want to expand on is 
how this is going to play, not just sort of within the actual conflict on the ground, but uh, in the West, in, in Europe, and again, particularly in the United States, where we do have this ongoing negotiation. So let me throw it out to, to, to Quinta, because I know she has some thoughts on this. How should we think about both how this will play into that negotiation and also whether that negotiation itself may have contributed to this Ukrainian defeat? And certainly um, some folks in the Biden administration are uh, pointing to the fall of, of Zivka as an example of you know, what happens when Congress, in particular Republicans, dither on providing more aid to Ukraine. I think it does drive home, you know, I well, I should say I'm not, I don't know enough to draw a straight line between sort of US dithering and what happened here. I'd be interested to know our, our colleague Eric Charmella's thoughts. But we had a very good conversation in the Lawfare podcast with um, Eric and our colleagues Molly Reynolds and Ben Wittes, um, where the point was made that, you know, this is going to be kind of a slow grind um, if the U.S. doesn't help and that there may be it may be hard to kind of kick Congress into gear, given that there might not be, you know, a single moment where it becomes clear what is happening um, and that uh, the Ukrainians are struggling because of a, a lack of U.S. support. I'm not optimistic enough to think that this defeat for Ukraine might represent that kind of come to Jesus moment. Um, but I do think, you know, it does give the Biden administration uh, the ability to say, like, look, this happened and it didn't need to have happened. And, you know, perhaps if the U.S. had been more able to provide the support that Ukraine needs, it, it wouldn't have occurred. Um, and I, it, I think it also just makes really clear that, you know, Contra what a lot of Republicans in Congress seem to want to present this as, you know, it's it's not a game. It's not something to be played with politically for, you know, something that's completely theoretical like this. There are actual stakes here. Um, and frankly, I think the the death of Alexei Navalny um, in, in a Siberian prison makes pretty clear, like, what the stakes are here. Um, and that this is not a power that you particularly want to allow to sort of run roughshod and do whatever it likes. Again, will, will this actually have an effect on Congress? I don't know. I hope so. I kind of doubt it personally. Um, but I do think it it's makes it pretty clear the the world into which we we might be stepping um if Republicans can't get things together. Yeah, I may be a little rosier on the prospect that this does shake a little bit loose on the political scheme because we're seeing some interesting movement even in the kind of like hub of the anti-Ukraine support uh, right uh, on this, some weird things like to the point that particularly after the Navalny killing, because I think we can, I think we can call it a killing, even though that hasn't been publicly acknowledged. It seems pretty clear that's what happened, uh, or at least something well, bad happened. Uh, I don't think that's yeah, true. I, mean, I, I think look, he he was he's been in custody for several years. Yeah. He had, uh, I believe, kidney problems that went untreated, and he died. So whether or not he was murdered, you know, by someone pushing him out a window, the Russian state killed him. I, I think that, that's, that's I think I mean. that's right. I think yeah, that's right. I think that's what I mean, and I, and that's how I'm going to describe. It. I mean, this is a killing, even if he was is a slow slow, a slow motion, motion murder as opposed to an murder. actual I like practical murder. Right. Although there were some weird reports about Russian intelligence activity cutting out surveillance mechanisms and security measures at the prison in the days leading up to this. That um, I don't know if I've seen confirmed in reporting somewhere, but those are out there. So so it might have been something more dramatic as well. the The key point though is that it, it is a really symbolic 
moment. I mean, I think Navalny was one of these rare figures that did capture a lot of public attention in the international media among a lot of international political figures. I mean, we even had Tucker Carlson, who just got off, uh, you know, an interview with Vladimir Putin and an apology tour of Russian grocery stores and subways uh, (laughs) come out and say like beyond grotesque. It was extremely grotesque uh, from the parts I've captured. I, I avoided watching a lot of it. But, you know, really driving the point that even he said, like, this is horrible what's happened to Navalny. No one can defend this now, even though that's kind of what he was effectively doing before Navalny was actually killed. Um, we've seen Trump do the weirdest thing, but nonetheless a sign about how this is a vulnerable talking point for them, where he starts comparing himself to Navalny and trying to free ride off the Navalny idea, saying that I'm like a similarly beleaguered political figure. That is absurd, to be clear. But it is does, I think, underscore how even in, um, you know, populations that are not sympathetic to support for Ukraine uh, and maybe more sympathetic to Russia generally, the Navalny was one of these figures, the way he was treated as one of these issues that um, is a is a point that has vulnerability for them. So I think this might help knock things loose. I also think, frankly, the shift in momentum and the fact that the Russian government does not seem to be shy about kind of trumpeting it and essentially saying this is the beginning of, uh, you know, there are resurgence in Ukraine might knock things loose as well. I mean, like, remember that the talking point we're getting from um, J.D. Vance and other folks is this idea that you need to force the Ukrainians and the Russians to to the negotiating table. It's not actually – nobody's arguing that you should force the Ukrainians to capitulate generally. Well, if Russia is on the offensive and marching and doing this sort of things and showing no interest in getting to the negotiating table, and it looks like, you know, Ukraine is not mounting a counteroffensive, but instead, instead trying to hold territory, that – makes undermines that argument a bit. It means that the route to the peace table might be actually having to push back on Russia a little bit. So I think these dynamics may be shifting a little bit in a way that this helps knock Ukraine assistance loose this time. Question how big a difference it'll make, a question how fast it will get there. Uh, and there's a question whether it can fundamentally change the dynamics of this conflict. Like Russia seems to have the political will and the institutional capacity to hurl hundreds of thousands. We know hundreds of thousands of people have been killed in the Russian military in this war so far. They seem to not be feeling any pressure to stop. Um, And they seem to be able to have an industrial base to produce the basic arms they need, even though we are effectively degrading their high-end technology, when it's just artillery shells and things like that, they seem to be able to produce that and have an industrial base that's ramped up um, that competes with what the West can provide to Ukraine so far, at least under current political conditions. I don't know if that – what changes those dynamics. And, And those are the challenging dynamics that Frankly, we always knew we're going to be a major constraint on what Ukraine could accomplish in pushing back on the Russian offensive. And now we're just feeling that rubber really hit the road. Um, And it does change the dynamics around how we approach this conflict, both from a U.S. policy perspective and how Ukrainians, you know, who are still in the driver's seat as they should be, have to think about their strategic goals as well, I suspect. So, uh, look, I I appreciate your optimism, Scott. I I will admit I'm I'm a little more pessimistic about what it would mean for Western support, in particular U.S. support, but perhaps even EU support, um, though perhaps we should talk about that because I, I think the, we, we underrate how much support the EU actually provides uh, the Ukrainians, uh, both in absolute and also on a actually per capita basis. But I mean, l- let, me, let, let me phrase the question this way. What would it take for you to conclude that Ukraine has, quote unquote, lost this war? Um, and of course, you know, at this point... Russian tanks riding into Kiev is is not on the table, right? No one thinks that that's going to be the loss condition, which is itself quite an achievement given what the three of us were worried about back in February, uh, you know, two years ago, actually, when this war started, almost exactly two years ago. I think you're right to say that, look, one town has fallen. Let's not, let's not over-rotate on this too much, right? 
But I think it's still useful, especially for those of us, and I think all three of us would uh, associate ourselves with the kind of pro-Ukraine camp, to, to kind of steel man the other side a little bit or, or to figure out what is the failure condition, right? Because, you know, I, I do think that while I have extremely little sympathy for the J.D. Vances and Tucker Carlson's of the world, I do think one one point that they or or the, the more sober-minded Ukraine skeptics do bring up that is worth it is what is your failure condition? Like what would it take for a Ukraine supporter to say, this did not go, this did not go our way, it is time to to, to end this, right? Because I do think that if one can't answer that question, that that's a problem, right? And again, I'm not saying that that this should change our priors all that much. I mean, it should change them a little bit, right? But maybe only a little bit. But what would it take to say, yeah, I, I think I think this one was lost. And, you know, you have to just try to maintain as much Ukrainian territory as, as possible and, and end this. So I don't think that's the right way to think about this as sort of lost and won. Ukraine has won this war, period. Um, remember, Russia's goal was to take the entirety of the country. That was its strategic objective from the outcome. And Ukraine has now pushed it to the point where it cannot even maintain full control of the two separatist, you know, uh, oblasts that originally they tried to recognize as separate countries when they started but that's, this war. But, but, but wait a second. Wait a second. I, so I, I'll grant you that Ukraine has not lost this war, but that's very different than Ukraine has won this war. I mean, to be clear, like, there is Ukrainian territory durably under Russian control. There is no Russian territory durably under Ukrainian control. I, I don't see how you can call well, that Ukraine. Ukraine was winning. never trying to take Russian territory. No, no, no. But that's <laughs> that, what I mean. That was, but like, that's kind of the point. But there's just a weird definition of one a war when you're smaller than when you were. I mean, I, I that, that's why winning and losing wars is is not a smart way to think about this. If I'm being honest, uh, like it, it has Ukraine met or exceeded its strategic goals. Or what, what, frankly, could realistically have been expected of it in February 2022? Yeah, by miles. It's incredibly impressive. And they are in a much better position than we all feared they would be when facing what is in the end still a nuclear superpower enemy, very intent and willing to throw immense resources at accomplishing the strategic goal of taking them over. That's a point of pride. It's something that you know Ukrainians and Ukrainian leadership should be celebrated for um, and should continue to be celebrated for historically. That makes them historic figures, right? We shouldn't lose sight of that. But this idea that somehow we are going that we are going to kick Russians entirely out of the country with that was kind of the underlying idea of the counteroffensive. Maybe you had to try it for political reasons. Maybe there was real reason to think it might be successful. But I think that is a hard narrative to buy into now. Um, and something what I, which I have been saying for a while, and I, and I still remain convinced of this, and I fear, I fear that this is a, a sign that this is right, even though it's not, a, it's a bitter pill to swallow, is that strategically right now, when you're facing a Russia that still seems to, you know, not be domestically constrained from throwing all the resources it has, which are substantial at continuing to press on this line of this conflict, you've got to think less about how do we you know, reclaim militarily our lost territory at this point, and more about how do we hold what we have and make it too costly for Russia to either continue this war or to at least continue to advance in this way. And that's a different set of armaments. It's a different way you deploy troops. It's a different way you harden your position. These are all what I think we need to think about now. And it does mean that, like, you're accepting Russia is it de facto in control of parts of Ukrainian territory? I don't think you have to accept it as legitimate. I don't think you should. Uh, I think you have to say that this is militarily occupied territory in a conflict that's still ongoing. But it does mean in terms of where you commit your resources, um, maybe you need to take a little bit more of a humble goal 
and then say, okay, and the rest of, of reclaiming this, we're not giving up on that mission, but it is going to be a long-term political mission, not just a short-term or medium-term military objective. Well, so, so let me, you know, that's helpful, but let, so let me ask you this question, maybe in a slightly different way, which is what would it take to be able to credibly say that Ukraine has won this conflict, right? Because again, I think that as long as Russia is in de facto control of a non-trivial part of Ukrainian territory, I just don't think you can say, I think it's very hard to say that Ukraine has necessarily won this conflict. And so what else could we do, right, short of just focusing on the military situation? So for example, right, I'm not I'm not saying this is necessarily a good idea, but you know, what if the answer was you sue for peace, you maybe maybe Ukraine gives up that territory to Russia, but Ukraine gets EU membership and a massive, you know, Marshall Plan-esque reconstruction and you turn it into a new Poland, right? Is that something? Is is that a different approach that we have to take to this conflict? And the reason I ask is that you know, if your if your conclusion is this is a stalemate where Russia maintains this territory under de facto control, but no one recognizes it as legitimate because, of course, it's illegitimate. Does that prevent a settlement that would be ultimately more advantageous to the Ukrainians? Now, again, I just want to emphasize because I really am worried about my words being misinterpreted here. Like this is for the Ukrainians to decide. Like if they want to continue this war, they should continue this war for like as long as they want to. But, you know, if there's just no realistic chance of Russia being dislodged from this territory, at what point does that have to just be accepted as the status quo for the foreseeable future, where foreseeable future is not measured in months or years, but potentially in decades? So for what it's worth, I don't I can't speak to the internal Ukrainian politics here. I just don't know it particularly well. But I do think that Part of the problem here is that in order to have some kind of arrangement along those lines, Russia also needs to agree to it. And that's kind of the problem here, because Putin has really staked his political legitimacy on this war, you know, in terms of framing it as like a a war against fascism, which, you know, has a very particular historical weight in Russia, given uh, the Eastern Front in, in World War II, that that just makes it really, really hard for him to be perceived as backing down. And and likewise, that any kind of agreement, you know, you would have to be sure that Russia would abide by it. Um, and this is a situation where they obviously blew right through the uh, agreements that were reached in, in Minsk after the, the 2014 war. It kind of reminds me of... Um, I don't know why this is what I go back to, but I think this is something that uh, David Plotz of the Slate Political Gabfest said during one of the the government shutdowns in like 2013. A very a very wise man uh, that, uh, and obviously the circumstances are different, but that Obama attempting to negotiate with House Republicans over a government shutdown was like a game of chicken, except that the two players were a responsible father driving a school bus full of children and a car full of crazy people out of their minds on meth. <laughs> Um, <laughs> An actual chicken in the other car. <laughs> <laughs> On meth. Um, and so, again, the dynamics here are very different. Um, but I do think that I've been thinking of that comparison because it just points to kind of the impossibility of negotiating with someone who is just not on the same planet which is something that we already know because Putin already made the insane, destructive, 
decision to invade Ukraine in the first place, thereby starting a war that got him into this situation when everyone who had been following Russian politics said, oh, of course, he would never do that. That would be insane. So it just strikes me that it's, you know, if the Kremlin were behaving rationally, I do think that there is an argument for what you propose, Alan. The problem is just that there's a crazy person in charge who has staked everything on winning this, even though I don't know what winning winning looks like, um, other than, you know, taking over all of Ukraine, which is obviously impossible. Yeah, I mean, I think this really gets at at the difference between some sort of negotiated settlement, which I, I don't think is in the cards at the moment, and accepting what you're changing what your strategic objectives might be or accepting a different set of strategic objectives. And again, talking about the winning or losing is not useful. People should abandon that language. No one wins in a war like this. Uh, it's about, you know, your strategic objective and, and, and how close you get to it. And again, Ukraine's accomplished a lot of amazing strategic objectives throughout this war and its leaders and military and otherwise should be celebrated for that. But at this point, I think the objective has to be to hold what you have and to prepare yourself as best as possible to in the long term, defend yourself against what is essentially a Russian siege. It's a war of attrition, right? And Russia has a lot of foundational factors, a larger economy, a larger military industrial base, larger population that give it a big advantage in a war of attrition. And there needs to be some sort of model, whether it's security assurances, whether it's long-term security assistance commitments, although those things are all hard for the West to reliably commit itself to over a multi-year span because of domestic politics. But those are the factors that will go into to securing uh, what Ukraine holds. And at a certain point, maybe if you show that you are dug in enough that it's going to be too expensive to Russia to progress or other things change, then Russia proves willing to go to the negotiating table. And then Ukraine has to decide, well, is, is it worth it or not? You know, Are we willing to make any sort of concessions or are we not? And the international community can up its leverage by, although at this point it might be kind of hard, by increasing for sanctions further, You know, making Luhansk, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk like Crimea complete drains on the Russian economy. Those are the longer-term political tools that you can bring to bear here. But in terms of the military objective, I think this might be the pivot point if we hadn't already hit one already with the end of the the, the offensive to say, like, we need to accept a little bit more constrained military short-term objectives to hold our territory, prepare ourselves for a Rus ongoing Russian siege, keep what we have, um, get our allies focused on that and Ukrainian forces focused on that. And leave for the reclaiming of additional territory for diplomatic political tools and maybe military tools in the future. But for the moment, you know, focus on keeping what you have. Um, because Russia has proven itself to be, while not very effective in this conflict, resilient in terms of what it's willing to, the amount of pain it's willing to suffer and still keep going. And that is what a war of attrition boils down to. And that's where we're at in this conflict. And so in light of that, you've got to prepare yourself for a longer onslaught. And I think maybe move past the idea that you're going to be able to bring it to a quick end. From one intractable and depressing international conflict to another. Uh, so things have continued to get worse. Um, what else in the Israel-Gaza war right now? The latest slate of news has to do with a planned operation by Israel into the uh, city of Rafah in southern Gaza, which has raised a fair amount of alarm among countries around the world, including for what it's worth, the United States, particularly because uh, Rafa currently 
according to the New York Times, is sheltering over half of the population of the Gaza Strip. Um, many of them are in tents. Um, they've sort of been pushed there because of Israeli operations in the north of the Strip. There's been some indication that uh, Egypt on the other side of the border is perhaps preparing for uh, civilians in Gaza to move out into the Sinai during a potential operation there. That, of course, is worrying for uh, a number of reasons for, for from a number of perspectives. Um, and we also have indications that the United States, again, what else is new, maybe losing patience a, a bit with uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, not only um, over this operation in Rafah, but of course, we've had some indications in terms of an executive order from the Biden administration um, allowing sanctions against far-right settlers. Um, and some other indications about constraints on on aid to Israel. So, Scott, there's a lot going on here. Um, I'll leave it to you where where you'd like to to start. But what's your take on where things stand right now? Sure, I, I think it's worth starting with Rafah and understanding why Rafah uh, is such a a pressure point and a point of contention um, with. The West and between Israel and frankly, just about everyone else at this point, even countries that traditionally backed it. Um, it is, uh, the city that's kind of closest to the southern border, to the border crossing with Egypt. And it is a place where, as Quinta noted, a lot of Gazan civilians have been kind of guided as Israel has moved south and pushed them back in. But a underlying anxiety, a suspicion among, certainly among Palestinian leadership, among Arab governments in the region is that Part of the drive of this military campaign hasn't been strictly defensive. Part of the drive is to push Palestinians out of Gaza and to resettle Gaza with Israelis, which there were Israeli settlements in Gaza prior to 2006, 2007 withdrawal by uh, then Prime Minister Sharon. It, kind of like the West Bank uh, is today, um, there was sort of contention. They were withdrawn when they kind of handed it, when U.S. For, Israeli forces withdrew. They kind of shut down the settlements in a pretty dramatic fashion. That is that has continued to be controversial in certain circles in Israel uh, international community. There's this concern that essentially they have been building this pressure by kettling, uh, to borrow a phrase that Joel Bronald, uh, who I had a great conversation about all this with uh, for the Lawfare podcast this week used kettling people into the South, building the pressure in, and then you're going to use the conflict to push them eventually, ultimately, to the other side of the Egyptian border and into the Sinai Peninsula, where the Egyptian government has been settling up, setting up facilities to house Palestinian refugees in anticipation of something like this happening. It's not clear exactly what it's going to be. It's not at the scale you would need to house, you know, millions of Palestinians being evicted from Gaza. Um, but people have taken that as a sign, like, oh, no, like, this is actually what's going to happen. Maybe the Egyptian government has even kind of gone in on it somehow, or at least has kind of accepted that the writing's on the wall from the Israelis that all of a sudden, Gazans are going to be kicked out of Gaza entirely and forced to just resettle in the Sinai. You know, who knows if this is true or not, right? Like a lot of Israeli officials have very clearly said this is not true. We're really only aimed at trying to uproot Hamas, but that's incredibly difficult and complicated and requires a lot of violence uh, and a lot of civilian deaths because they're so rooted in to the Gaza Strip. But the Israeli government has never really presented a clear counter narrative about saying, here's what our end state is. Here's what we're working towards that very clearly says like Palestinians stay in Gaza, that they're, that they've never hinted that they're going to allow self-government. They never described what sort of authority is going to govern Gaza in their future vision. Um, and you have 
prominent figures in the current Israeli government, not people who are leading the war effort, but nonetheless fairly significant, who are pro-settlement in the West Bank, have attended conferences about potentially resettling Gaza. And you do have a big part of the Israeli population that says this is desirable and appropriate. I mean, famously, there were flyers circulating, you saw copies of online, laying out plans for, you know, luxury beach villas uh, superimposed over the decimated buildings of the Gaza Strip. It's pretty horrendous stuff, in my view. And the Israeli government, frankly, like, just has not completely denounced it as firmly or as persuasively as they could have. And that's making the United States, the Biden administration, very nervous, a lot of governments very nervous, and they have kind of softly drawn a line around a possibly rough offensive saying, like, this is something you really can't do this way, Israel. You can't treat this like the rest of the Gaza Strip. But if the Israeli government will listen, is is not clear. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu signaled he's not because he says this is necessary for us to complete our military operation and of truly uproot, uproot Hamas. But they also like haven't fully leaned in to actually do this yet. Um, so that's the kind of the holding pattern is to see what what happens next. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm not sure I have anything to add to Scott's astute and deeply depressing description of of what is going on. I mean, just to emphasize again that wars need to have purposes. That's what makes them just, right? Um, there, there's a, a, a very interesting article by a, a Zach Beecham at Vox. Um, he's been doing really, really interesting kind of big picture and you know, thinking about, about the war. And in his latest on this, he talked to a bunch of folks, including Michael Walzer, right? The famous just war theorist. I mean, literally kind of resuscitated the, the, the theory of just war for the 20th century. And, and he notes that Walzer, who actually been a longtime pretty staunch supporter of Israel because uh, he recognizes the sort of real security issues that Israel has, um, is getting, even he is getting extremely fed up with the war in Gaza uh, because the Israeli government, in particular Netanyahu and uh, those affiliated with him, refuse to articulate what an end stage can be like. And, and I would just note that it's not just the prosecution of the war in Gaza that has this problem. You know, Netanyahu is not showing any willingness to engage on the much bigger issue, right, which is the path to two states or just generally the treatment of Palestinians in Israel. I mean, you know, while this is going on, while Israel prepares to uh, attack Rafah, right, you have Itamar Ben-Gvir, the sort of far right, truly far right. I don't know, what's what's farther right than right? Um, extreme far right. Um, National Security Minister, um, yet again, trying to block access by Palestinians of the West Bank, from the Temple Mount, right? You know, just as Ramadan is about to start. Um, you know, yet, yet another indication that, you know, not only is is large parts of the Israeli government not interested in any sort of solution, but parts of them are actually accelerationist. And it just m- makes it increasingly difficult to understand what, what the point of all of this, uh, what the point of all of this is. The question in, in my mind is kind of, well, two questions that are interrelated. One is, at what point does the U.S. start to lose patience with the Israeli government? And second, what does that look like and what effect does it have when it does? Um, I can't find this article right now, but there, there's a very darkly amusing chronicle that someone put together of basically every 
anonymously sourced story since October 7th about Biden, how Biden was, you know, on the cusp of breaking with Netanyahu and just month after month after month. Um, there's this reporting about, you know, sources close to the White House say that, you know, the, the Biden administration is, is close to voicing frustration, you know, um, again and again and again and again. And it does seem to me like the U.S. response to this uh, planned operation in Rafa is, is potentially a breaking point. There was some information circulated about a proposed, uh, resolution, um, that the U.S. was thinking about introducing at the, at the UN. Um, calling for, uh, I believe a ceasefire was the specific language, which is sort of, I think you can fairly read as an indication that the U.S. is saying, like, you need to cool it. But will we ever actually get there? I mean, we've been waiting for this for months and months and months. Well, I, I mean, I, I think it depends on what you mean by breaking point, right? I mean, I, I think we've reached many breaking points. I mean, I think the the, the Overton window um, has shifted actually quite dramatically. You know, the, the Biden administration has imposed sanctions on a small number of West Bank settlers, but um, and I think this was to me the most interesting part of the the recent podcast you had, Scott. The uh, the the effects of this, if scaled up, could be just absolutely tectonic, right? I mean, if you get to a point where it's not four settlers, it's ten, it's a hundred, it's a thousand, it's some organizations in the West Bank, um, you know, that could really cripple. You know, that that could put Israel in a position of having to either choose whether to provide any support whatsoever to you know legal settlements in the West Bank or bring the Israeli financial system to its knees given how enmeshed it is in uh, the US financial system so that that's a huge that's a that's a huge deal you know talks about you know the 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 US led ceasefire resolution in the UN is a big deal even rumors about the US unilaterally recognizing a Palestinian state probably won't happen but even rumors about this right um given where those rumors are almost certainly coming from uh, is a big deal I, I think we just have to be somewhat realistic about what breaking point means look israel is simultaneously and this has always been the paradox an incredibly weak and beleaguered nation given where it is and an incredibly strong nation right given just how much more powerful its military economy and technology is relative to its neighbors right it does not well, it, it, it needs the United States in one sense, but in this sense, it doesn't need the United States. The United States cannot stop, right, what the Israeli political and military establishment want to do, not in the short term, right? It cannot stop that because Israel is an extremely strong power relative to its current military objectives. Um, and also because the Israeli political leadership, not all of it, obviously, but a bunch of it, including the prime minister, is some combination of true believers, right, in a kind of maximalist right-wing Israeli cause, and just for Netanyahu in particular, have these just horrible political self self-interest um, incentives to prolong this war, uh, because you know, again, as we mentioned many times, Netanyahu is uh, it's. Um, you know, still amazingly under indictment, right? And the moment he stops being prime minister, which you know, most polls suggest he will be as soon as this war ends, uh, he will no longer be immune from that. So, you know, again, it, it's, I, I'm just, I'm not sure what, what breaking point necessarily means here. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information 
you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate delete me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So I think it's right to say we've hit a couple of breaking points. We've seen a kind of gradual move here. But I, I do think there's a point which the United States has to, if it feels the Israeli government is not moving in a direction that it thinks is really important to say, we will publicly oppose this openly, not through leaks to the media, which has been like the main mechanism of doing this. And that is kind of what these tools we're seeing. We see the, the economic sanctions around West Bank settler violence. We see a memorandum that doesn't do a lot new, but does kind of bring out to the open the fact that Israel needs to make positive assertions that it's complying with various international law principles that the United States can push back on and start more dialogue around for U.S. security assistance, which is important for Israel, although perhaps not like critical, but highly important, I think, generally. Uh, and then we have this U.N. Security Council resolution, which is a notable political step. Like, is it going to make a difference in the end? No, but it's always been a touchstone of the U.S.-Israeli relationship that U.S. helps shield Israel from Security Council criticism, and a weakening of that is going to be a real sign. The difficult line the Biden administration has always walked on this is that, which is I think is maybe perhaps overlearned lesson from the Obama days, is that, look, if we come out too openly hostile to Israel, then that actually plays to the advantage of the far right in the Israeli government, in the Israeli political scene, because then they run against us. They run against the idea that the international community and now the United States, our ally, is somehow forcing us to act contrary to our interests. And so they need to find a way to divide the the idea that these policies are uh, detrimental um, and tie it to one particular like Israeli uh, faction and, and make it more of an Israeli political issue. You essentially need the Israeli political scene to change. And that's a tall order. Like the conflict in Gaza is not unpopular with Israelis. It is not a product of Bibi Netanyahu. It is something that the Israeli government, a, a coalition government that includes opposition figures in the war cabinet, is behind. Even the people, opposition figures not in the current government, not in the war cabinet, are supportive of the general conflict. And that conflict is the root cause of a lot of these problems. Now, maybe they would not be supportive of pushing Palestinians into Gaza or maybe into the Sinai. That is a big line, right? That's a breaking point. And maybe that's one where you can get enough uh, different views among Israelis being split out where you begin to put political pressure and either Netanyahu begins to leave or you begin to see a shift in the political scene to say, here are the actual limits about what we're willing to do. The other one is this the hostage crisis. Like there's a big Israeli political divide now about whether the U.S. the Israeli military offensive should 
accepts ceasefires temporary or not in exchange for hostages or whether it just needs to write off the hostages, accept the tragedy of their loss and complete its military objectives. And as my discussion with Joel revealed, which I highly recommend to folks, like that's unfortunately cleaving in Israeli domestic politics along familiar lines with the kind of kind of right wing group that's currently in charge of the current faction saying we need to complete our military objectives, completely eviscerating Hamas, no longer, the, no matter the civilian cost, no matter the cost of our hostages and others saying, well, we at least should take steps to try and save our hostages. And maybe at a certain point, we need to accept that like this conflict has gone on far enough. That divide's not big enough yet. It's going to get there. It's going to get there naturally. It's not artificial. It's a real policy divide. And the United States has been hesitant to, I think, put themselves in a position uh, to come out too strongly against Israel and constrain its options in this kind of tragic post-October 7th moment um, because they're worried about the, the domestic political scene will be, how effective that kind of pushback will be in the medium term. But, you know, at a certain point when you don't push back, when you don't set those constraints, you also face a problem in that, like, you have a set of savvy political actors that are perhaps doing things and pushing things in a direction that are really problematic for you and your long-term strategic objectives. And they don't take these subtle hints, or at least they haven't as of yet, that, oh, the United States may do something in the future. So every step, every movement towards setting up real points of leverage over Israeli officials is important. And you can do those quietly, which is what the Biden administration has been doing, signaling them subtly without expressly stating, here's 100% what we're going to do. We're going to put pressure on you for fear of what that will do. But you're going to hit that point eventually. And I think it's sooner rather than later. And I kind of think Rafah may be that point um, in the next few weeks um, where we're going to see a real pivot point. It's not going to fundamentally change the relationship or the dynamics around the conflict, but it's going to set a – once you cross that line, once you accept, no, we are putting actual real pressure on the Israelis to do something now, then – you are a little more in the driver's seat and you ha- and you I think you you've kind of broken the seal and you're saying, okay, then we are gonna start steering this conflict towards a position that's more uh comfortable for us from a policy perspective. And that frankly at this point means winding it down. Um I think the Israelis know this. I think that's why they're pushing as hard as they can to get as much done on the ground with the window they have left. But long story short, you know, from the start of this conflict, we knew there was a months long window, not a years long window, a month long window where the Israelis were gonna be able to do the sort of things that they were gonna want to do which were very damaging to civilians, damaging to Gaza before the international community would put pressure on them and end it. The Israelis knew that too. And I think that's the window we're beginning to see close. And the real question is like how far the Israeli government's willing to push it, particularly around Rafah and what their actual objectives are. Uh, although I tend to be skeptical that they're actually trying to push people in the Sinai, but who knows? Like then before they get that window, how far they're willing to push really international relationships before they get that far and how much their domestic political system can can withstand. And we don't know. And the truth is Bibi is just a much – and his faction is a much more resilient group than a lot of people accept. And we like to think of them as they're this extremist government, but they're a government that's won popular elections multiple times in the last couple of years. And they're not isol- they're not isolated views. They're like a view that's bought into by a lot of the Israeli public. So how much is that going to change the medium term? I'm not sure. And that really casts a lot of cold water on, I think, on a lot of long-term ambitious plans that hinge on there being a change in the Israeli, you know, political preferences. Because I, you know, that, that just is, is asking a lot for a, a political change within Israel that I, I'm, I'm not sure there's reason to think is actually on the cusp of happening. Well, let us turn from overseas to the home front to a uh, another controversial issue uh, that is working its way up Capitol Hill as we speak, and that is, of course, the Kids Online Safety Act. This legislation we have talked about before. It is uh, a response to uh, social uh, science studies, uh, public health studies that suggest uh, a variety of types of engagement between 
teenagers and children and different types of online activities, social media engagement in particular, has detrimental effects on their health, mental health, uh, education development, um, particularly mental health concerns. And Congress has been kind of wrestling with ways uh, in a bipartisan way, um, but in a way that may ultimately prove problematic about how to best tackle that. And we are now at this latest version of the law that would provide a mechanism um, uh, and an obligation on social media platforms to uh, install some sort of protections or at least take to account certain interests and certain uh, set up certain gateways, but not quite as tight gateways about how underage people can access the internet. And in particular, empowers both the FTC and potentially state attorney generals and probably the most controversial act aspect of the law to enforce certain parts of these measures. Quinta, I know you have been following this law really closely. Let me turn it over to you first to like kind of lay out how this version of the law differs from earlier versions and what exactly it does. And then I want to get into how we feel about it. But let's first lay out the kind of more technical aspects that I think you grasp better than I do. <laughs> yeah, well, what what this law does is actually somewhat complicated because it's been significantly watered down from initial versions that listeners might have heard about. So um, as you mentioned, there initially a lot of what was going on here had to do with um, age verification requirements for users under I believe 13 and 18. Um, that is now watered down. So the bill actually explicitly says it's not implementing an age verification requirement. Um, but it does say that platforms have a responsibility to sort of be more careful um, in terms of how their products are designed if they have actual knowledge that a user is underage. What does that actually mean in terms of how platforms will design their services and, and how they will sort of respond to this? I have been looking into this and I don't know. There are also, so there's this uh, idea of a duty of care. So sort of responsibility that platforms have to, again, take, take that care with regard to minor users, particularly for content that um, could have potentially negative mental health effects. So depression, anxiety, sort of patterns of use that might indicate addiction, uh, physical violence, sexual exploitation, etc. There are also a number of requirements in terms of how platforms are designed. So in terms of like algorithmic amplification and infinite scrolling, for example, um, and disclosure requirements about how the platforms work. Um, and as you say, the, this is to be enforced both by state attorneys general through uh, parents patrie lawsuits, but also by the FTC. One of the big changes in this latest draft of the bill is that the duty of care requirement, which was in some ways the most sweeping, uh, is now no longer uh, enforceable by state attorneys general. It's only by the FTC. And I can talk a little bit about why that that change was made. And it was something that um, LGBTQ groups felt very strongly about. There's also a fair amount of stuff in here about uh, research that will be required. Previously, there were provisions allowing independent researcher access to data. That's been rolled back for reasons I don't fully understand. Now there are requirements that the National Academies of Sciences uh, take a look and conduct some studies about the effects of internet use on children's mental health. Um, and there's, there is more, but I won't get into all of it here. I think the, the short line is that it is significantly watered down from initial versions that, uh, some, uh, internet freedom groups and LGBTQ groups were alarmed about. But I don't, after taking a look through personally, I will say 
that watering down doesn't, to me, completely mitigate those concerns. And frankly, it also leaves me kind of puzzled about what the point of the bill is if it's so watered down to begin with. Well, yeah, I mean, I look, I, I, I don't think anything could completely mitigate those concerns that would still be remotely responsive to the problem. Well, let me be fair. I think it's a problem, but at the, I know some people don't think it's a problem. So let's just say to the problem as the sponsors of the bill see the problem being. Um, you know, I will also note that, you know, although the bill is is still coming under a lot of, of fire, I, I think it actually has mollified quite a number of people. I mean, you know, I'm looking at a, a Verge piece uh, on it, and, um, you know, it does look like a lot of major LGBT groups, you know, GLAAD, Human Rights Campaign, the Trevor Project, I mean, have said that they are ultimately okay with the bill in its current form, right? Again, I'm sure they still have their objections and, and problems with it, but I think it's a kind of a big deal if you can get all those groups to say, you know, you've, you've largely um, accepted or you've largely dealt with with our uh, uh, concerns. You know, I, I think kind of zooming out, right, there is there is on the one hand an element of a Congress needs to do something. This is something. Therefore, Congress needs to do it. That's always kind of a problem with bills of this sort, um, in part because the problem is just so difficult to solve. The problem is still relatively new. There's still not, I'd say, total consensus uh, on the nature of the problem. On the other hand, maybe this is as someone who's always been a bit skeptical of the kind of big tech, West Coast, deregulatory fever. And also just personally, uh, as you know, a, a parent, I, I just feel this more viscerally. Um, I mean, I, I really do. Like I, I, I live in fear of, you know, 10 years from now when I have to give my children a smartphone or at that point, a Neuralink implant, um, which I suspect is going to be the the new thing. I, I am largely convinced that on net, social media has been a net negative for, for children. I, I just, you know, I, I find the, the evidence to the extent that I am qualified to analyze it and not being a statistician or an empiricist, um, I'm obviously at a disadvantage here. As frankly, I think are many people on both sides of this debate. You know, but I find the work of people like Jonathan Haidt, you know, pretty convincing on this uh, on this point. And although I recognize that, look, we've never been able to eliminate any sort of social harm to children, right? We've never been able to drive teen drinking to zero, teen smoking to zero. That is just not the level. That's that that should not be the the goal here. Um, and we have, I think, been able to make a lot of parts of life safer for children. Uh, and, um, you know, if I had to then choose between a bill that was quite flawed, but moved us in that direction, you know, a allowed for, frankly, a bunch of litigation that, you know, and regulation that while messy and will have a lot of false starts, will move us in that direction. And just the status quo, which again, is to be clear, nothing, right? It's just nothing, the status quo. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna vote for, I'm gonna vote for the the legislative action. I think every time, although I have no, you know, no, with, without any illusions that this is some perfect bill that doesn't have real problems to it, that hasn't made compromises with, you know, some bad faith folks on on the right. I, I, I get all of that, right? I'm, I'm not gonna like blow smoke up anyone's butt and say it's a perfect bill, but you, you work with the Congress, you got, right? And it's all a matter of trade offs. So look, I think it's probably helpful to actually clarify what what we think that the problems with the bill are, since I didn't actually state that um, out front. <laughs> sorry, so, sorry. <laughs> let rewind, record scratch, freeze frame. <laughs> so to be clear, the the concerns about this bill coming from internet freedom groups 
and from, I think, importantly, LGBTQ groups, which include not only like uh, GLAD and HRC, but other groups like uh, Fight for the Future, which is a kind of combination queer advocacy, internet freedom group, um, and plenty of others. The concern is that the way the bill defines harms to children is sufficiently broad um, that it could allow state attorneys general in red states and potentially, it's worth saying, you know, an, an FTC under a future Trump administration to use this legislation as a way to uh, restrict access to potentially important resources, for example, kids who are figuring out their sexualities or gender identities. Um, and this is important in particular because we are at a moment where on the right, um, there is this kind of obsessive focus on, you know, trans and queer kids. And so this isn't sort of a, you know, a hypothetical that people are spinning out. This is something that is very present. Uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn, who's the Republican co-sponsor of the bill, made a comment over the summer that the bill would help, I think her specific words were protect children from the transgender. The Heritage Foundation has made similar comments. Blackburn's office did walk back that comment, but she did make it. Um, and, you know, we've seen plenty of, of actions on, in red states, um, that I think Indicate that, uh, state attorneys general will be only too happy to, to try to limit access to this. And I think this is also important because I, I think Alan, I take a different view than you do of the sort of the link between mental health and, and access to the internet. I agree there's, there's some indication that indicates that it's harmful for kids. There's also some, some indication that it's helpful. And a lot of the problem here is that we just don't know. We need more information. I do think that it's good for that reason that the bill does include these these requirements for National Academy study. I'm not crazy about the fact that that happens, you know, that's going to happen after the actual legislation is passed. Um, and it's also true that, you know, people point a lot to the the Surgeon General's report on uh, teens' mental health and the internet. That report, I think, was a lot more inchoate than it was sort of played as in terms of, you know, yes, some harms, maybe some good things also. But for what it's worth, one of the things that it did note that I think was underplayed was that uh, there's a particular group of kids for whom social media um, and the internet was associated with better mental health. And that is... LGBTQ kits. And so that is important in particular, given everything that I just said. Um, and so, and I think that this goes back to a point that I've made previously, you know, when you say like, think of the children, right? Or like children's mental health, I think it's very easy to abstract that. And it's important to think about, you know, which children and what are their situations. The most recent draft of the bill, I think, does mitigate some of those concerns by taking the duty of care enforcement away from state attorneys general. That said, it does give it to the FTC, which under a term administration might not get the result that Democrats are looking for. Um, there's also state attorneys general do have this ability to uh, enforce these provisions on uh, design of platforms, which you can you can imagine a way in which that could be used to kind of restrict this kind of content. There are there's a language in there that says I, I don't have it right in front of me at the moment, but something along the lines of, you know, like resources that are helpful to mental health or something like that shouldn't be restricted. Uh, Senator Blumenthal, uh, who's the Democratic uh, co-sponsor of the bill, has sort of presented that as 
explicitly saying like, so, you know, information like the Trevor Project wouldn't be restricted, but there's nothing in the bill that says, you know, LGBTQ resources are fine, <laughs> um, which makes me a little nervous. There's also this very weird bit at the very end um, that is new in in this version that says it's a that has to do with preemption. Um, and says that nothing in this act shall be construed to prohibit a state from enacting a law, et cetera, et cetera, that provides greater protection to minors than the protection provided by provisions of this act. As far as I can tell, based on the markup from the Senate Commerce Committee over the summer, I think that was uh, uh, Senator Cruz suggested the importance of including that preemption language. That is worrying to me because it, it suggests, and I'll give a shout out to Blake Reed here, um, who, who pointed this out to me on, on social media, that, you know, you could basically have a red state legislature pass similar legislation and say, we're very concerned about children's access to, you know, information about gender identity. Um, look, this is more protective of children <laughs> than COSA. Now we can go out there and enforce that. Um, and so I kind of worry that, you know, the, the democratic co-sponsors of this bill have kind of, tried to patch up all of these problems that uh, groups have identified and then basically opened a door, basically shunted all of those problems through this preemption thing at the very end, which is going to lead to a ton of problems. But the, the, under the status quo, nothing would prevent a state legislature from doing that now, right? No, that's that's correct. Um, but I mean, you could not have the preemption clause at the end and then it would be preempted. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if the goal of this was to prevent – I mean, I like – that very clearly seems to bar be a bargain to say we are not restricting states' existing authority to legislate in this space through this federal legislation. Uh, and in the silence of that, you would like actually have a judicial argument. You'd have a legal argument to say, like, is this preempted or not? Because it doesn't expressly preempt it either, right? Unless an earlier version did that. Um, but I don't think that was ever part of the calculus was that we're going to have a one national standard of this stuff. Or that would be I, a political well, so, so look, I mean, this is we're, – we're getting pretty – we're getting pretty deep into the weeds now, but I mean, look, part of the problem that we have seen with tech legislation that we saw with FOSTA in 2018 is that if you say, oh, yeah, state attorney attorneys general are going to be able to enforce this on their own, potentially on the basis of state law, you end up with a patchwork and then tech companies are incentivized to basically take the lowest common denominator and restrict everything. So, and we know that that's what, that's what could happen because that's what happened with FOSTA. So I'm, I'm sort of, I think the particular dynamics of that make this particularly worrying to me here, given the political context. Well, you know, I, I was thinking about the preemption provision. I think, I think it's kind of interesting. I don't know if that, that, alarms me uh, in this case. I don't think that's how we would think about preemption. Like it seems pretty clearly to say this is a preemption rule that says essentially like we're, we're not preempting the existing ability of state legislatures to do all this. But it doesn't strike me that those state laws would somehow channel into these enforcement mechanisms that are created here. In fact, quite clearly, it seems that they do not, right? Because it's treating them as outside the scope. And it's it's useful between that and eliminating the duty of care that this does constrain the role of the state's attorney generals, which does strike me as the most concerning part of this framework. Because state attorney generals are, are – I think there's good reason to think they're not always the most reliable legal actors. Like they do lots of politically driven stuff. Um, they embrace lots of different different views that people might not agree with. Uh, I, I guess the question here is like in the parts left to the state attorney generals, what are the ones that provide the risk factor? 
And there, like, the big parts that are left to them are transparency and reporting requirements, which, like, nothing jumps out to me of those of being highly concerned, maybe from an industry perspective, like, they're tools by which state attorney generals could put pressure on industry, but, like, it's not necessarily what we want if the, if the reporting requirements are out there. And then there's the age access issue, like, this idea that if a platform knows somebody underage is on here, or, I don't know whether it's no or reasonably knows, which is like a big difference in this sort of context. Uh, and I think that was like something that changed in early, in recent versions of the law. But this question of like knowledge of saying, okay, we can hammer down on platforms for failing to identify or for failing to adequately account for age differences. Like that's a point of concern, I guess, maybe. But I'm wondering how much wiggle room state attorney generals have to do with what what hay they can make of that, like what trouble they can do with that mischief. I could they see some, but I don't know if it strikes me as like as concerning as a duty of care standard that is fairly broadly worded. Like like I'm I'm not sure you get to the same outcome here. Um, so I don't know. I I do think this is actually like a substantially watered down version from that angle, the angle of state attorney generals causing mischief. FTC federal regulation always takes the angle that federal regs will be applied badly and we do have elections and they have consequences and that's unfortunate but i think that's kind of baked into the the nature of any sort of regulation but on the state level which is a weird thing this law does this does seem to like take a lot of the problems out of it am i am i misreading that or is there some part of what the states can still do that's that is the biggest uh loophole that people worry about state ags abusing I mean, I think, yeah, for me, it's it's more just that th- we know that states are interested in passing these kinds of really restrictive laws because we have seen them do that. For example, in Utah, where I think it's you're you're not allowed, kids aren't allowed to go on the internet after ten thirty p.m. <laughs> or or something like that. Um, which which I think gets to another. Amen. Point. <laughs> Please block I, me I, from the internet too, su- Utah. I support that a hundred percent. But but no, look, I mean, I think that gets to another really important point, which is that a lot of those state laws have run smack into First Amendment litigation uh, brought by NetChoice, this this industry group, which I think is another really complicated <laughs> issue because I do like I don't really particularly like this bill. I actually think it were better if it were not to pass. But I also worry for reasons that Alan has written about in the past in a slightly different context that there's, if this does pass, I suspect there will be First Amendment litigation. And I worry that the tech companies are going to basically argue all of this is completely off limits because of the First Amendment. And then you kind of end up saying, you know, and therefore no regulation is possible at all. And I don't like that either. (laughs) Right. I feel very weird that I, my sort of, I would like for there to be tech regulation. And I have somehow ended up in this position of arguing against all of the regulation that is on the table, because I think that it's bad. But that doesn't mean that I think it should be, you know, constitutionally prohibited. And I'm, I'm worried that that is kind of the direction that we're heading. Um, Alan, I don't know. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I mean, I do. I mean, look, what on Monday, the court is going to be hearing argument in in the the other. There's so many net choice cases uh, in the other net choice cases. The ones about the Texas and, so, and Florida social media moderation laws, which I'm sure we will talk about the argument uh, on, on next week's uh, RATSEC. And so I think we'll actually get a, a bit of a sense of where the court's head is there. I mean, you know, what, I, what I, would I, the First Amendment? I I can't. I have trouble sinking my eyes on what a First Amendment oh, oh, oh like. Boy. Okay, a, a, okay. A credible one would be here. Like oh no, there, there are a bunch. There's, no, there's, there's a ton. There's a ton. Yeah, there are a yeah. bunch, right? So, so, so two in particular, right? Well, th- three, two of which are credible. So the one that's not credible, I think, is tech companies have a First Amendment right to communicate with children in any way that they want, 
right? Um, and then that, yeah, eh, I'm not sure that's going to get anywhere. But then there are two, two other ones that are much more credible. One is that children themselves have First Amendment rights. I mean, they do. They have fewer First Amendment rights because they're children, um, but they don't have zero. And the the doctrine about first children First Amendment rights is actually pretty complicated. You know, uh, and and so I I think that it's it's complicated, it's unsettled. You know, it is true that that some of these laws are are being challenged on those grounds successfully or unsuccessfully. But that's 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 one. The other is kind of think of as a spillover argument, where even if the children themselves don't have a First Amendment right that's being unconstitutionally abridged, adults do. And if you pass a law, and this often comes up in the age verification context, where if you pass a law for age verification that in the end causes platforms to so lock down their platforms that adults can no longer access material because we don't have, let's say, necessarily a good age verification system, then that can be its own first amendment problem. Now, look, I, I, I am at the end of the day somewhat skeptical of these arguments because, you know, I, I think that just as we figured out a reasonable age verification system for alcohol, it's not perfect, but like it's pretty okay, right? Um, or tobacco. I mean, I, I suspect we can figure this this thing out that will assuage the First Amendment issues. But there's no question that these First Amendment challenges, they're not frivolous. They're not frivolous at all. Um, and, and they will have to be uh, worked through. I count myself highly dubious that there's serious First Amendment issues for this, given that, especially because it's like an, an age knowledge requirement. But I'm going to say that, and I'm going to end the conversation because we're out of time today. And we will have the opportunity to revisit this next week uh, or some related issues next week when we talk about the net choice cases and a sneak preview of next week. Because that brings us to the end of this time of our time together for this week. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the weeks to come. Alan, what do you have for us this week? So I have one of the the five one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. Uh, American Fiction. Um, it's uh, a, a new film. Or it's not that new anymore. Um, but because I have two small children, I don't get to watch new films. So I, I only watch them once they're streaming, and I can watch them over three days at night with my wife because otherwise we're very tired. Um, so it's by it's sort of written and directed by Core Jefferson, um, and it stars Jeffrey Wright, um, Sterling Brown, some some other uh, great great actors. It, basically, the the premise and it's based on a book from the, the '90s called I think called Erasure. Um, and the premise is uh, the main character, uh, this guy, uh, Thelonious Monk Ellison, who's a, a black author who writes these like really kind of highbrow, like super intellectual books. His career has stalled uh, because basically no one wants to publish his work. They want, quote unquote, black fiction. Right. Uh, and so in rage and desperation, he writes as basically a satirical joke. This book that initially he calls um, My Pathology and then renames just to kind of screw with people even more. Fuck. Um, and it's just like, like, it's like the most cringy, like poverty. Point. It's just awful. Uh, but of course, the, the joke is that if he becomes this runaway bestseller, wins all these awards, and he's just driven like, you know, more and more towards madness. And as this is happening, uh, there's this. In addition, this really interesting and actually nuanced story about his and his sort of upper middle class black family and all their travails. It's an incredible movie. It is incredibly funny. It's kind of brutal to watch, to be honest. Um, it does this wonderful inversion where it's the white characters who are like cookie cutters. It, it's just, it's fabulous. And there's also this really affecting family story. It's gotten total rave reviews. It's, it's up for a bunch of, uh, you know, Oscar nominations, both for best picture and, and best actor. And I will say it the universal acclaim that it has gotten, right? I mean, just universal acclaim um, on the left, on the right, you know, everywhere um, gives me a lot of hope for American civilization going forward. But more than that, it is just a it's spectacular movie. I just highly, highly recommend it. 
Have either of you seen it? No, no. I've really, really wanted to, and oh I've heard God, it was good, and so, now I want to even more. So, so I'm putting good. it on my list. It looks but, great. Yeah, it's it recommended to have an alcoholic beverage in, in hand while, while watching it. <laughs> I will say, I've also heard that the, the book that it's based on, Erasure, is very good, although I haven't I, I need it. to. I need to read the book, yeah. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? I, I have a, a work of fiction, though not a, a movie based on a work of fiction. Uh, it is a novel called The Book of Love by Kelly Link, who is a... Very highly regarded, I don't really know how to describe her, kind of like magical realist, weird fiction, short story writer. Um, she's very good. She won a MacArthur in 2018, I think. And this is her, her first novel. Um, and I basically inhaled it over the course of two days. I, I don't even really know fully how to describe it. I think it, there's a, it's kind of like a riff on, uh, Tamlin, Thomas the Rhymer, sort of English ballads from that period. It reminds me a lot of the wonderful Diana Wynne Jones novel, Fire and Hemlock, if anyone has, has read that. It was just. I'm not getting any of these references. You're way too highbrow for me. <laughs> <laughs> Diana Wynne Jones is a kid's. Like fantasy writer, that's not. Yeah, but, I, I, but, I, but I bet she's like a highbrow because because you were a highbrow kid. Oh, oh no! Oh, oh no! 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 <laughs> uh, but anyway, it's delightful. Um, it's extremely well written, but not in a showy way, which I always appreciate. And the plot kind of takes a lot to. It takes a while to get moving, and once it get, gets moving, it runs off like a freight train. Um, so I I highly highly recommend it. Um, just like an excellent read on on many levels and also something where if you're just kind of like looking for something with a, a plot to kind of carry you off to another world, um, it was extremely enjoyable. I also recommend everything else that Kelly Link has ever written because she is just generally great. Well, wonderful. Well, for my object lesson this week, uh, I'm sharing a local tip, uh, but also a uh, I'm going to mix in a national, uh, vaguely related one just for folks who aren't the DC area. I had the great joy of taking my young son on a pre baby sister trip to Baltimore, Maryland to visit the aquarium, uh, national aquarium there this past weekend. It's phenomenal. I have not been, I have not been like 25 years. I can't recommend it enough. It is stupidly expensive, but little kids get so much joy out of the sheer amazing animals you get to see there. And the thing I did that was kind of expensive, but was a hundred percent worth it is that they have for like, a dozen people every day, a before the museum opens the sunrise tour where you go in an hour early and get an hour kind of personalized tour of the whole aquarium um, where it's just you in the space. And it's was just so phenomenal to get to see these animals and have them pointed out by an informed tour guide without the chaos of the aquarium because aquariums turns out are very expensive to maintain. And so they pack a lot of people in there during the day. My three-year-old found it pretty overwhelming when it got at full capacity. But when it was just us and the animals, he had, was just so intensely focused on just learning about and looking at these fish and sharks and things. No octopuses, which I found very disappointing. But other than that, all sorts of other animals. It was just phenomenal. I can't recommend it enough if you're in the DC area. And Baltimore, great train museum is Check that out. It is like the perfect city to take a three-year-old on a, you know, getaway vacation on um, because it's just kind of got all the things you need to check and, you know, you're in bed by eight and it's great. That said, because this is a mid-Atlantic only tip, I'm going to supplement it with a national object lesson. uh, And that is the lovely, interesting podcast by our friends at Goat Rodeo, Birds Are Cool, uh, which I just tuned into earlier today for the first time, featuring none other than our occasional producer, Kara Shalin. Um, It is a podcast all about birding, uh, a hobby I find very strange, but I see a lot of people out doing while I hike around on the weekends with my family. Uh, and it's very interesting and very kind of peaceful and cool uh, and check and has me intrigued. So if you're a nature lover, not of the aquatic variety, but of the aerial variety, check that out. Uh, and all around, uh, check out some of our animal 
fauna friends uh one venue or another in the week to come until we are back in your podcatcher well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit us on lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series, including The Aftermath, now out in Season 2. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at RETL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. For more information, visit lawfaremedia.org slash support. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.